Our reading today is taken from Mark chapter 15, verse 1 uh, to verse 5. Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to verse 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many things they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. We do not know the year exactly, but the story is definitely true. A young man called Isaac has butterflies in his stomach. He has fallen in love. He is pacing nervously around the room because today is the day he is going to meet his young lady uh, called Elizabeth. He is going to meet her for the first time. The pair, you see, have been exchanging poetic love letters to each other over the last few months. And Elizabeth is over the moon. She's really excited at the prospect of meeting Isaac. And there has been even been talk of marriage. And now the moment has arrived uh, for Elizabeth Singer to meet the gifted poet she has fallen for. The man we have come to know in history as Isaac Watts. History tells us as soon as Elizabeth looks at Isaac, her heart sinks. She loves the poetry of Isaac, but she cannot get past his looks. You see, Isaac is five feet tall. Uh, he has strange yellowish skin. His head is disproportionately large for his frail body, and it boasts a large hooked nose and small gray eyes. And so when Isaac later proposes to Elizabeth, she turns him down flatly. In that famous line that has gone down in history, Elizabeth later tells her friend, If only I could say that I admire the casket as much as I admire the jewel it contains. And with that painful rejection, the opportunity goes for Isaac to marry Elizabeth. In fact, Isaac, though he remained friends with Elizabeth Singer, he never ever got married in his life. How do you feel when you hear that story? Uh, it, it is terrible, isn't it? I could almost feel the pain of Isaac Watts when I first read it. All rejection, you see, is painful. Uh, it makes us feel shunned, ignored, worthless, and ashamed. No one wants to be rejected, uh, which is why I find Jesus very puzzling. You see, as we go through Mark, I keep noting that Jesus keeps getting rejected by everyone. He is rejected by his family. We see that in chapter 3 of Mark. He is later rejected in chapter 6 by his hometown in Nazareth. He's being rejected by demons. He's being rejected by forces of nature, the winds and the waves. He's being rejected by the Pharisees. He's rejected by the people of the Garrisons in chapter 5. He's later on rejected 
by his disciples. He's rejected first by Judas, then all of them join in. And we, we looked at that tragic event when Peter, his best buddy, rejects Jesus. When we think of the life of Jesus, we can't help but conclude that our Lord Jesus is a rejected man. And the strange thing about that is that Jesus, of course, is God, and we expect everybody to embrace him. But I think what is even more stranger is not just that this is a rejection of one who's fully God. Uh, the, the, the strange thing about it is that instead of our Lord Jesus shielding himself from rejection, we see in Mark actually Jesus willingly letting it happen. Even we might say, as we have entered chapter 15 onwards, allowing it, not only just allowing it, embracing the rejection. And so that raises a question. It raises a question in my mind. Why did Jesus let himself be rejected by people around him? And most importantly, what does the rejection of Jesus mean for us who truly follow Jesus? What does it mean for me every day that our Lord Jesus is a rejected man? Well, the answer to this question is in today's passage in Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to 5, the passage we just read. You see, there in, 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 those, in those verses, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. It is Good Friday, right? This is the day Jesus will be put to death. And in those verses, uh, we saw two weeks ago, uh, when we looked at verse 1, that Jesus is under lockdown by the religious the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And they are now about, we read in verse 2, verse 1 to 5, they are now about to hand him over to the Romans. They are about to reject him. They are handing him over to the Romans to be killed. And as we look at this passage in its entirety from verse 1 to 5, I think this passage teaches us one important truth I want us to consider today. And the truth it teaches us is this. It teaches us that Jesus willingly suffered rejection to welcome us into his kingdom. Jesus willingly suffered rejection to welcome us into his kingdom. That is the key truth I want us to explore this morning. Uh, it is the only point I want us to focus on. You see, the rejection of Jesus should bring us tremendous comfort. We should, should bring us comfort of the love of Jesus for us and encourage us to keep trusting in Jesus in every situation we find ourselves in. Well, let's unpack this a little bit more to see the comfort of his rejection. Look with me at verse 1 there. It is early Friday, as I said, the luring council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, uh, has reconvened to hand Jesus over to the Romans. And we read this in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Let's just pause there. Uh, during Thursday night, the day before, they had put Jesus on trial, the Sanhedrin. Uh, they sentenced him to death for admitting that he is God dressed in human flesh. Uh, they, are sentenced, they sentenced Jesus to death for blasphemy, for him confessing publicly that he is God living among us. He is Christ the King, God the Son, the Son of Man. But the problem is that even though they found Jesus guilty, the religious leaders um, cannot put anyone to death. 
Uh, this power to kill Jesus lies only in the hands of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And is mentioned there uh, in verse 1. We read on in verse 1, it says, And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, we know Pilate really existed, not only because the Bible here mentions it, but also because secular history agrees that Pilate was governor in the year 26 to year 36. So once again, we, we have the Bible here. We, we are so used to these names, Cephas, Pilate, mentioned in the scriptures. We sometimes forget that these were real people, that therefore the Bible is showing us just how historically accurate it is. And we also know from secular history that the Roman governors tended to hold office in Jerusalem only in the morning, right? In the, in the odd afternoon, they enjoyed leisure. They liked to go off to do a bit of leisure. This is why the Sanhedrin have come early in the morning, we're told in verse 1, as Mark says, they want to catch Pilate in case they end up having to wait for another day before they put Jesus to death. You see, they are in a hurry to get rid of Jesus and they don't want to wait. So they have decided to catch him in the morning. And so we read there, isn't it? As, it, and, and as soon as it was morning, in verse 1, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, the key word in verse 1 is actually the word delivered. The Sanhedrin is officially rejecting Jesus as their God and King. They are handing him over, they are delivering over to Pilate to be killed. But there is a problem here. Uh, the problem is that the charge of blasphemy that they have come up with uh, will not mean much to Pilate. Uh, it is not enough for them to secure a death penalty on account that Jesus is confessing that he's God in the flesh. So the Sanhedrin have reworked the charge into something that will frighten Pilate into actually doing something about it. They have decided to, for, to, to accuse Jesus of claiming to be an earthly king. Look at verse 2. And Pilate and when they brought Jesus over to Pilate, and we have in verse 2, Pilate now, if you like, putting the charge before Jesus. In verse 2, we read, and Pilate asked him, asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, you may remember that on Thursday night from chapter 14, the high priest Cephas asked Jesus the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, the son of God? And Jesus boldly declared, I am. He made that confession before Cephas. Now, the title Christ is Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel. And in the mind of most Jews, it is the same as king of the Jews. And so with a slight twist, the Sanhedrin have turned the confession of Jesus into a confession of treason. They are now telling Pilate that when Jesus says, I am the Christ, Jesus is in effect plotting a rebellion. And so with that slight twist, Pilate is now being forced to check with Jesus whether he is indeed claiming to be king. Hence the question that Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? So the question is, how will Jesus now respond to this 
deadly charge to Pilate. Well, if we read on verse 2, it says, Jesus says this, and he answered him, you have said so. Jesus' answer to Pilate is, is a bit cryptic, isn't it? It is not a direct yes, because Jesus is not the kind of king he accuses one Pilate to believe he is. His kingdom is not from this world. His kingdom is heavenly. But Jesus is not denying the charge either. He says, you have said so. The emphasis is on the you, right? In other words, instead of denying the charge, Jesus is in effect giving an invitation to Pilate to find out more and confess Jesus as the true heavenly king. In effect, Jesus is saying to Pilate, who do you, who do you really think I am, Pilate? Uh, it's a question that Pilate should consider carefully and come back to Jesus, uh, asking for more. But before Pilate, Pilate doesn't actually take up the offer as such. And, and it seems that Sanhedrin doesn't give him, give him that much time because in verse 3 we read that they quickly jump in with their accusations. Let's read verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and that is accusing Jesus. Now, Mark here does not tell us what the chief priests are accusing Jesus of, but we know from Luke's account the, the malicious false details that they are bringing before Jesus. We read this in Luke 23, verse 2 and verse 5. And they began to accuse him, that is Jesus, saying, We found this man, Jesus, misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute or tax to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And in verse 5 we read, But they were agent, saying, that is the Sanhedrin, he steers up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. In other words, Jesus is plotting a rebellion. He's forbidding people to pay tax and so forth. The, the Sanhedrin are making all this stuff up uh, because they have made it, as far as they are concerned, they want Jesus dead at all costs and they are willing to lie to ensure that it happens. They are publicly rejecting Jesus as their God and King and they're doing it with slander and they're doing it with lies. The irony of this situation is that, as we said two weeks ago, Jesus is indeed the promised King of the Jews. We know he is the one they have been waiting for. But now that Jesus has arrived, Jesus the Messiah, the right head of the Jewish nation has come. The religious leaders have decided to declare Jesus an enemy of the state. They don't want anything to do with him. Now, as, as Pilate listens to their accusations in verse 3, Pilate is baffled that the Jews want to kill a man who they claim wants to free them from the oppression of Rome. You would think they would want to support any man who tries to do that. But here they are trying to have this man put to death. And, 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 there's a, and, and he senses, I'm sure, that something is not quite right. So in verse 4, he turns to Jesus and poses the question. And Pilate again asked him, in verse 4, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges, we should read that, see how many false charges, really, they bring against you. So Pilate is shocked. He's, he wants Jesus to clarify what is going on here. 
but but what what Pilate finds even more shocking is that instead of Jesus answering his question, Jesus just keeps quiet. We read that in verse five. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. The refusal of Jesus to defend himself amazes Pilate. Anyone else would want to defend themselves against false charges. It surprises Pilate. Why would, he, why would this man Jesus allow himself to be rejected by his own people like this? But if we have been following the account in Mark carefully up to now, it shouldn't surprise us. It should not surprise us because we know something that Pilate does not know. We know that Jesus has predicted at least four times already that he will be rejected. We know that Jesus, when he got to Jerusalem, he taught that excellent parable of the, of the tenants, the wicked tenants, where he essentially predicted through the parable that the Sanhedrin will ensure that Jesus is put to death. If you like, Jesus has come to be rejected. He has come, he's on a mission to fulfill God's plan foretold in the Old Testament that Jesus, God the Son, will come as the rejected king of his people. He will come to his own and his own will not receive him, to borrow words from the uh, Gospel of John. And these prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus is fulfilling, that he's aware of and is fulfilling, is in, for example, the prophecy in Isaiah 49 verse 7. Isaiah 49 verse 7 says this, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So Jesus is that king for whom kings will protect in the future. If you like, prostrate them before themselves as a king of kings. Um, but now, at this state of his humiliation, he's being abhorred, um, despised by the nation he has come to serve. Or, for example, the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 3, which we are familiar with. Speaking of Jesus, it says this, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The words of Isaiah are reminding us that this rejection of Jesus by his people has God's fingerprints all over it. It is part of God's plan to serve us. You see, the good news of these verses, if you like, is that the rejection of Jesus is not simply by his people. Rather, Jesus is ultimately being rejected by God for his people, for us, for sinners. You see, the handover of Jesus here that we are witnessing in verse 1 to 5 by the Sanhedrin to Pilate, this handover of Jesus is really a prelude to a divine handover of Jesus to the wrath of God. If you like, as we witness these physical events, there is something spiritually happening uh, over and above these events of God himself handing over his son to evil men to put him to death. And we see the climax of that divine handover on the cross of Golgotha when Jesus is put to death. 
You see, soon Jesus, uh, he will be handed over by Pilate now to Roman soldiers who will lead him on to Golgotha, where they will crucify Jesus between two criminals. And as Jesus dies there at 12 p.m., darkness will descend on the land. And at 3 p.m., Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why will Jesus cry out like that? Why did Jesus cry out like that? Well, because the God the Father turned his face away. God's wrath that we deserve for rejecting God was poured on Jesus on that cross. God the Father rejected Jesus, his son, in our place. Jesus suffered the divine rejection for us. You see, you might wonder why would that be the case? Well, you see, our fundamental problem as human beings is that we have all rejected the kingship of God. We have all chosen to be our own boss. That's what the Bible tells us. And this is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is rejecting God as king over our lives. It is refusing to surrender and live for God every second of our lives. And the consequence of our rejection of God is that all of us face eternal separation. We face eternal rejection. We face eternal punishment from God in hell forever. But God is full of love and mercy for us. He still doesn't want us to suffer eternal rejection in hell, away from his presence forever. But at the same time, he knows it is what we deserve for rejecting him. His justice, his holiness demands our rejection. We've rejected him, so we can't live with him. So how is God going to reconcile his love for us, which is too great, and his demands of his justice and his holiness? Well, to satisfy both, God, out of his profound wisdom and grace, has taken the initiative to bring those of us who truly repent back to him. He has done this by God himself coming in the person of Jesus. To suffer rejection from God for us. God the Son has come in Jesus to suffer rejection from God the Father. You see, right there on the cross, Jesus, God the Son, suffered the rejection of God we deserve in our place. And he did that so that if we truly repent of our rejection of God and put our trust in that substitutionary rejection, so to speak, substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, we can be welcomed into God's kingdom forever. If we embrace the rejected king, we can be fully welcomed in the kingdom of God. And so this is the good news of Mark 15, verse 1 to 5. It is simply this, that if you have truly repented and are now trusting in the death of Jesus, you are now in the kingdom of God forever. That is the gospel. 
The gospel is that Jesus suffered rejection for you. If you are in Christ, you are no longer rejected by God. You are home with God forever. What, what does that mean then for us every day that Jesus has suffered rejection for us in our place? Well, I think it means three things. First of all, if you are a follower of Jesus, this truth should comfort you every day of just how much Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he suffered rejection to be with you. The American writer, Albert Haber, famously said, a friend is the person who knows all about you and yet still likes you. And the good news of Jesus is that God indeed knows all about you and he knows also everything about you and he knows the many ways you reject him every day and yet he still loves you and calls you his own in Christ. You see, if you are in Jesus, God will never reject you because Christ has suffered rejection from God on your behalf. So now God is your friend forever. God is now our friend forever. In Jesus, God is a friend you have always dreamed of because he is the one who is the only one who accepts you up front and then gives you all of himself to you forever. And he, he has come to live in you by his spirit and committed himself to look after you, after you and after your every need to be with you forever. That is the comfort of his grace. And what a wonderful God we serve. So that's the first thing this passage should do. It should really encourage us, comfort us, to help us see just how much Jesus loves and cares for us. Secondly, this truth should comfort you when you face rejection from people around you because you are choosing to obey Jesus. You see, you see just as our Lord Jesus experienced uh, rejection in life, uh, the more you follow Jesus and share his truth, the more people around you will reject you. And the strongest rejection will come from those who claim to know God. Just like the strongest rejection Jesus faced was from the Sanhedrin who claimed to know God. In our case today, the strongest rejection will come from those who claim to be Christians. You see, when we tell people they are heading the wrong path and that they must repent and truly trust in Jesus, when we call out sin in the life of others, when we tell them that, no, the gospel must be the center of our living, people will often reject us for doing that. And it is very tempting for us in face of such rejection to compromise on the truth, to preach Christ in a half way, rather than declare the whole counsel of God. And when we do that, we are no longer following Jesus. We are really only following ourselves. And in this passage, we, are, we see Jesus doing the opposite. He's living faithfully to God. And therefore, we, as his true followers, we too must always tell the good news of Jesus. 
Because you see, the good news of Jesus is not our property. It is his message. And we have no right to meddle with it. Therefore, we as his followers must tell the whole truth to people around us. We must tell the whole truth to our family members because Jesus has taken on himself all of our fears of rejection and nailed it to the cross. We must tell the whole truth to our friends because even if they inflict emotional wounds of rejection, Jesus has already been wounded on the cross for us. We must tell the whole truth to our neighbors because even if they no longer invite us for tea, right? We know that God is our best friend and we are already welcome into his eternal kingdom. And we are headed for the new heavens and the new earth and the marriage feast of the Lamb. We must tell the whole truth to our work colleagues. Because even if it means poor career prospects, we still have a great future. In the kingdom of God. You see, if you are a true follower of Jesus, you must expect to be rejected for standing with Jesus. You are living for Jesus and sharing in his suffering. That's your comfort in the middle of being rejected for sharing the whole truth of Jesus. You see, the call of the gospel is a call to radical living for Jesus, not being loved and accepted by others. Following Jesus is not about fitting in the culture. It is not about maximizing church attendance. It is not about trying to fit into some theological clubs so we feel validated by people. It is not about group thinking. No, it's about following Him. It is about proclaiming the truth of Jesus, even when that truth is not popular in our culture. As Paul told Timothy, we must hold the mystery of the faith with a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So let us be comforted when people in our lives reject us for proclaiming the full truth of Jesus. Because even our Lord Jesus was rejected. The third and final comfort is this. Let us be comforted by how God used the rejection of Jesus for his glory and for our good. Because you see, God is doing the same in our lives when we face all kinds of rejection. You see, to be human is to suffer rejection. Not just the rejection of because we are proclaiming the truth. Just being human means we'll face rejection of all kinds, whether we're Christians or not. You are married, but your spouse does not totally accept you as she pledged to accept you on the day you got married. You are a father and your daughter has rebelled. She never listens to you anymore. She wants to do life her own way. She has rejected you as a parent. You are married and you find yourself struggling to relate to your in-laws. You feel rejected, treated as an outsider. And that really hurts deeply inside. You entered a relationship perhaps with someone hoping it would lead somewhere. And then things did not work out. And you are still nursing the pain of rejection. 
at work, everyone seems to get along with each other, except getting along with you. You don't know why. Maybe it's your gender. Or perhaps it is your age. Or perhaps it's the color of your skin. Life is full of many areas where we feel rejected. And there is no reason for us to pretend these things do not often crush us deep inside. Rejection is painful. And it can make life feel pointless and hopeless. I wonder as you sit here this morning, as you, as you listen to this uh, this morning, what rejection are you facing in your life today? Well, whatever situation you are facing, take a look at Jesus here in Mark 15 verse 1 to 5. Because here your Savior, if you truly trust in Jesus, here is your Savior being rejected as one of us. Be comforted as you look at this to see that the rejection of Jesus here is not being wasted by God. Rather, the rejection of Jesus is accomplishing our salvation. In the same way, I want you to remember that whatever rejection you are going through this morning, God never wastes the rejection of his children. God never wastes the rejection of his children. It is true for Jesus, and it is true for followers of Jesus. You see, when Isaac Watts, who we met at the start, was rejected by Elizabeth Singer, Isaac remembered that God never lets us suffer rejection without purpose. He later wrote this to his friend. This is what he wrote to his friend after his rejection. I am persuaded that in the future world, we shall do a sweet review of those events of our lives which have been full of thick darkness and trace those footsteps of God when he walked with us through the deepest waters. This will be a surprising delight to have those perplexing riddles laid open to the eyes of our souls and read the full meaning of them in set characters of wisdom and grace. Isaac saw the providence of God through his situation. He saw the comfort that God was in control through everything he was experiencing in life. How could Isaac Watts have such confidence that God would turn his rejection by Elizabeth Singer for good? Well, because Isaac Watts had seen it in the rejection of Jesus, where God turned our Lord's rejection for His glory and our good. And you know what? We know something that Isaac did not know. We know that Elizabeth Singer missed the chance to marry the most influential man of our generation, of his generation, and Elizabeth's generation. We know that God used the rejection of Isaac Watts by Elizabeth Singer to deepen Isaac Watts' walk with Jesus. And we know that the church today has benefited greatly from what Isaac Watts experienced. Open any hymn book in the English language and you merely find always at least one of the 600 plus hymns 
written by Isaac Watts. Some of the more popular hymns include Joy to the World, O God, our help in ages past, and of course, when I survey the wondrous cross. Beloved, like Isaac Watts, let us take comfort and trust the God of our Lord Jesus to use our rejection for his eternal glory and our good. Jesus is God our King. He suffered rejection to bring us into his heavenly kingdom. He is our rejected King and we are all right with him. That's the comfort of his rejection. Amen.